Welcome to the Qubits podcast. My name's Tom Broughton. I'm the founder of Qubits. And in this series, I'm speaking to people I like to call emotional utilitarians, people who live lives split between the pragmatic and the romantic. It's a good description of this week's guest, Marie Carlyle, co-founder of bespoke furniture designers Goldfinger. The company takes its name from Erno Goldfinger, the modernist architect behind Notting Hill's Trellick Tower, amongst many other buildings, at whose base the company can be found today. I'll be asking Marie about the balance between beauty and utility and finding out what three objects she couldn't live without. My guest today is Marie Carlyle of Goldfinger. Thank you for joining us, Marie. Pleasure. Wonderful to be here. Marie has kindly brought in three objects which to her represent the idea of the emotional utilitarian. Um, but before we get to those, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you and Goldfinger, if that's okay. Maybe we can start by asking the question, would you describe yourself as an emotional utilitarian? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think I would. I think I've, I've always believed that um, objects should be both functional and beautiful. Why make a compromise on, on the beauty part? And I really find myself, the way I curate my home and all of my objects just have a lot of uh, meaning when they, you know the person who's made them. And so I think there, there's an element of I like things to be functional and have good purpose, but yeah. at the same time, I have a very romantic side and I, I come from a background in the luxury goods industry. So this appreciation for aesthetics has always been a kind of, you know, gold thread throughout mm -hmm. my, my career in life and value set. So, yes, I think I would consider myself an emotional utilitarian. Well, hopefully that leads us nicely onto Goldfinger. <laughs> so perhaps you could just tell us the story of Goldfinger, how it came about, what Goldfinger does and represents and how that's changed over the last decade or so. Exactly. We are celebrating our 10-year anniversary, so the, the decade is correct. Um, so um, started Goldfinger in 2013 at the foot of the Trellick Tower uh, as a social enterprise that was all about bringing furniture making with the circular economy in a high-end way. And initially, it was very much a vision. It took a long time to really get it off the ground in a way that reflects the original vision. In the early days, it was much more, um, you know, upcycling and things like that. And over time, we've really made it much more design-led, design-focused um, with in-house designers. And we transform what other people consider to be waste materials, mostly wood. Wood mm -hmm. is really our main focus, and we make sustainable furniture from this uh, wood either that's been donated by various companies or universities. We've had wood from Harvey Nichols, Christmas windows in 2019. We've had Teague Lab benches from Imperial College, uh, maple floorboards from the Design Museum. So they all have a huge amount of history and, and stories to tell. But most recently, we've really focused on so there's just not enough of that reclaimed wood to really have a commercial business um, on wood that from... A, urban trees mostly, but that have been felled or have fallen naturally because of disease, urban development, or weather-related conditions. And we call that tree cycling. Mm -hmm. So um, ensuring that there's minimal carbon footprint from where the wood was grown 
and ensuring that everything is made in the UK as well and predominantly all made from our workshop in North Kensington. Wow, fantastic. And what comes first, the, the wood or the design or how do those things join together to create a finished product? It depends. Uh, a lot of the time, um, I mean, we have it, we work mostly with interior designers and architects as sort of client-led commissions. Yeah. But the process is often material-led design. It will say, well, what material do you have? Yeah, yet we want to work with you, but you tell us what you have. And so it, it's a very tree-inspired, I'd say. It yeah. really is like, let's look at this, what, what planks we have coming in. We have a very close relationship with many of our timber merchants that we've uh, developed over time who let us know, you know, oh, we have some plane trees coming down from Kensington Palace Gardens. Do you want them? They'll be ready in a year because obviously there's a delay between when wood trees come down and when it can be used for furniture. So it's a very interesting process, very kind of synergistic, but iterative at the same time. You can't be too prescriptive because the wood isn't, it's not a uniform product that people may be used to when you buy sort of um you know, wood en masse from a, from a more traditional supply. It's full of character and nuts and grains. And so both, but a lot of the time the design will adapt to yeah. what the wood looks like. And when it comes to the end customer, they're aware, I assume, of the history of that piece of wood. Yes. And often they're very much involved in the selection process of yeah. the wood as well. We really involve them because every, our entire supply chain is in the UK. There is, and, and some clients don't have time, but some or don't aren't that interested, but most of them do like to be engaged in the process more than just photos, because I think the wood really almost speaks to you when you, you can see it and feel it. It's not the same to see a sort of two-dimensional flat image of a, of a plank of wood versus seeing it from all angles. Yeah. And so we really invite our clients to, to be part of that selection process, which is always really fun. And are there any pieces from the last 10 years that really kind of stand out for you? There are so many, but honestly, I would say one of my, my favorite pieces that, that really stand out and really encapsulating all of our, our values is, is the most recent commission um, and collaboration with the Tate Modern, which we did in partnership with Holland Ar Harvey Architects. And we used entirely tree-cycled ash. So I think you know there's ash is unfortunately one of these trees that's been affected by this disease called ash dieback. And so millions of ash trees in the UK are going to have to be felled over the next uh, few years. And it's we feel a huge responsibility to transform that furniture, that wood into furniture so it can sequester that carbon for generations to come rather than the alternative, which is often burning it just to make it disappear. Um, and so um, that collection really just really symbolizes our values around how one man's problem or waste can actually be someone else's treasure and it's you know beautiful wood ash is such as amazing timber and we also with this type of timber we stamp the gps coordinates of where the trees stood um and we've always done this uh kind of on the bottom of products i'll talk about this later but you can see it here the gps coordinates oh, yeah. right there um, but with the tate collection they actually asked for this gps coordinates to be on top so they're highly visible. So when you sit, it's in their restaurant um, at the Tate Modern, you can actually feel them and see them on the top of the benches and the chairs and the, sto and the stools and tables. So that's definitely a collection that really stands out as collaborative design, using a material that would otherwise have been wasted and to create something that is truly beautiful and useful. You mentioned the location of Goldfinger, which mm -hmm. is in the basement of the or the ground floor, rather, of the, the Trellick Tower. Um, how important is that building for, for Goldfinger? 
Very important. It really, I mean, I, I haven't spoken about the, the social part of our social enterprise, but that community is really what um, has shaped and inspired who we are. Everything from the tower itself, yeah. and obviously our name is, is, in, is inspired by its architect, Ono Goldfinger. Uh, we've taken a lot of inspiration from his vision of, you know, utopian vision of, 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 you know, using design as a way to shape society and to improve society. But also, it's such a wonderful statement on the fluid nature of beauty, because when that tower went up in the 70s, everyone said, this is ugly, take it down, it's horrible. And there was a lot of talk about tearing it down. And then not long after that, it was grade two listed, you know, the community came together to, to, to you know, petition for this building to be to be listed. And um, it's now as a result will never be torn down, is considered a, a real icon of British modern architecture. Um, and um, yeah, how something again can go from being destroyed to being revered as a as a you know national monument of of history. So that that's been a huge inspiration in terms of you know seeing value and potential where others don't early on, and that's very much what we do with materials with wood that others have either discarded or are planning to burn, but also with people. So mm -hmm. that that's the whole social impact side of what we do at North Kensington, where we're located, is. Um, a very interesting neighborhood in that it's uh, really sort of two worlds. There's extreme poverty next to extreme wealth. Um, it's one of the, it, it is actually the borough with the highest income inequality gap. And we happen to be located in the extreme poverty side of it, about less than a mile um, from the, the, the site of the Grenfell Tower tragedy uh, a few years ago. And um, we really aim to be a bridge between those two communities through two of our social impact programs. One is the Goldfinger Academy, uh, which is all about training uh, young people out of work and education, uh, young offenders, um, basically young people who haven't been given the opportunities they deserve, the chance to learn about design and craft and you know, give them career guidance if they want to pursue that. Um, and also our um, People's Kitchen, which is our community cafe, uh, which transforms into a soup kitchen once a month. And mm -hmm. we basically serve a free meal for the community. So that's all been shaped by being and living in that community for 10 years and really understanding what the community wants. Um, so when we first opened 10 years ago, we didn't just launch all of this. We spent quite a few years in this community co-development phase, asking them what they wanted and really just made the space quite open. And these services and programs developed in partnership with the community. So the community has been very instrumental in, in shaping who we are. And how, when you first opened 10 years ago, were you received? Well, as we were 26 with not much more than a hammer and a, and a laptop, I'm not exaggerating, and a lot of vision and, and uh, great energy, it was all very rough and ready and so very well because we, we, we just clearly had no idea what we were doing and it wasn't so um, threatening. And I think it was actually, when I look back, it was actually a, a strength. It wasn't deliberate. It just, we didn't have the budget at the time. We had to build organically in a very grassroots way. And so I think it endeared us to the community. Firstly, because we also said, you know, come in, come and help, completely volunteer run initially. It was pretty chaotic as well, I'm not going to lie, but it did endear us to that community because it wasn't polished, it wasn't clear what we were doing, and it was very inclusive. And so we were able to build very authentic relationships 
with the community and make them feel like it's a place where they belong. Could you tell us a bit more? You mentioned the Goldfinger Academy, mm. but how that's developed over the past decade and I guess the role that's playing now. Yeah, it, it has evolved a lot. It, it, it started off as very much community workshops, you know, come and, uh, you know, we would get a, a teacher from the community to teach a craft of some sort and make our space open to them. And it would be everything from, you know, make a chair or, you know, upcycle paper mache. It was very kind of craft in a big sense. Mm-hmm. And over time, we, we really focused in on our specialty and our, our expertise, which is woodwork. And so in um, probably in the last five years is when it's really focused in on the Goldfinger Academy of today, which consists of three programs. There's Manufacto, uh, what's sort of in-school programs where we actually go into primary schools uh, or early secondary schools, kind of 10, 11, 12 years old, which we do in partnership with the Hermes Foundation, uh, which is a curriculum that they've developed to bring craft and you know craftsmanship into, into schools that need it. Uh, and so kids can really get that experience of making an object very early on in their lives. Um, and it's an amazing 12-week cr- uh, program that is part of the school curriculum. Um, so there's one actually launching uh, right now at the Kensington Aldridge Academy, which is a, a school near near us. Um, so that's sort of the youngest we go. And then it moves into Future Makers, mm-hmm. which is the 16 to 25. This is sort of our flagship program, um, all uh, uh, really about helping young people um, who haven't got the opportunities they deserve to, but who have an interest in craft and design and making um, and showing. So we give them a week long experience of in our workshop making. And there's a whole program uh, involving a lot of career guidance and, and signposting too. And so we take on about um, 10 or so, um, three times a year of those young people. And then it's very much a community, an alumni community that builds and we introduce them to other people and because we can't employ them all, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Soulcraft is sort of the what lives on of those original workshops, which is sort of age, you know, agnostic, whatever age you are, if you're interested in craft, come and come and uh, come and make something. Um, and so we run those more sporadically throughout the year. So that's that's the academy in a that's nutshell. It. And you mentioned at the beginning that you came from a background of luxury products. Mm. How has that fed into the into Goldfinger and the process and, and yeah, the academy, I suppose? Well, the academy was, I think, a, a big departure because when I, from luxury, as I knew it, things have changed. But when I, when I was in the luxury uh, sector, which was actually more than almost 15 years ago, sustainability, social impact, these words were not known or discussed. If anything, it was sort of sustainability and luxury don't belong together. And I used to, people used to think I was crazy trying to bring them together um, because it very much was, there was sort of beautiful, luxurious things on one side. And then there was very ethical and worthy things on this side. But I I felt there was such a disconnect because actually they belong together. There's so much to gain from the synergy of the two. But what definitely has carried through is this sense of of aesthetic and and the quality. And I, I, I felt strongly that actually the ethical world of products was lacking in the the aesthetic qualities and design led and that you can't actually truly make impact or, or launch a brand that has pull if it's not aspirational, if it's not beautiful, it's got to be at the same level as your competitors. And then it just happens to do all of this wonderful social environmental. You can't lead with, we do all these great things for Mm -hmm. people and planet, but our product is a bit 
substandard, the product has to be. Uh, so I think that that sort of relentless um, uh, pursuit of, of quality and, and design and, and, and sort of aesthetic is was really what's driven me to make Goldfinger what it is. And, uh, and there's also an element of, uh, as a social enterprise, I thought there was a perfect pairing between the fact that ultimately doing things sustainably, doing things well, paying people correctly, sourcing materials in the UK, it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. And so you do need a premium positioning to command a higher price uh, just to make ends meet, not even to make a huge profit. But it just, it needs that. Otherwise, people will never be willing to spend so much more than the competitor products that are artificially cheap because of other forces like, yeah. uh, you know, outsourcing abroad, et cetera. So that's uh, that. Yeah. So it has really carried through. And um, it's a, it's an interesting word because I think some people, I think, you know, associate it with things that aren't ethical. But I'm really passionate about bringing the two together. And I think they do actually belong belong in the same uh, in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that, that yeah, you take the name from Erno Goldfinger, the architect behind the building, the Trellick Tower in which you're based. How much of his, I guess, approach to design and design philosophy feeds into, into the way that you, yeah, you approach furniture design and objects more generally? Well, I think, yeah, he's, he's a very uh, polarizing figure mm. and uh, not helped by the fact that he inspired the, the Bond villain. Um, but what I think a lot of people forget or overlook or is that his his visions you know his early visions for all of his buildings very much stemmed out of this very uh socially driven utopian world where community you know could, could live in harmony uh together and so that's something that we we really take take to heart even though you know ultimately some people may still some critics still consider the buildings to be, you know, obtrusive or or very kind of dystopian. Um, it's important to note that actually his original inspiration came from a very sensitive nature, sensitive sort of view of of the world and wanting to to help um, people uh, and how how design really can uh, shape better communities. Um, so I think we, yeah, no, we were very inspired by by that. He was also a furniture designer, mm -hmm. and so that's that's something that's um, always always piqued us. And uh, we hope that he would be, you know, impressed or interested by what we're doing in his in his legacy. But um, yeah, so I think that's uh, it's a yeah he's a he's a complex character, but um, we we do there are a lot of there are a lot of positive things about how um, you know. The inspiration of, of the of the buildings, and that's what led to all these social housing projects all over, like Trelleg, but also the Twin Tower mm -hmm. in uh, East London, Baltron, not far from here. Do you think he was misunderstood? I think so, actually. In his time, I think he I think he died not really given the respect and credit that he is now given. It's you know it happened after his death, like like is so often the case with uh, geniuses. I think he was quite misunderstood. I think it from anecdotal, uh, you know, stories that I've heard from people who worked with him, I think his temperament didn't mm -hmm. help because I think he wasn't necessarily the most able uh, and empathetic uh, communicator. And so I think maybe sometimes the message, a very good message and vision got lost in translation. Mm -hmm. Have you um, met his grandson, Nick, who's also a furniture maker? Yes, yes. He's a DT teacher, yeah. I believe. Yes. In the very early days, we thought it might be fun to collaborate, but uh, no, he was very happy we were doing what we we're doing but uh, no, nothing nothing further came of that but who knows maybe one day
we actually use a little moniker that, um, uh, that was, I think, for the Balfron rather than the Trellic, um, which is Jazzy Knobs Collect Dust. I don't know if you've come across, they had a little, he wrote a little manifesto for people moving into the building. And there's a, that line always stuck with me. And mm. he was talking a lot about his obsession with door handles oh, and light right. switches and both the positioning of them, but also the idea of the shape of them should be very, very like incredibly utilitarian paired back, not just because he thought it was more elegant, because it was more functional, mm. particularly door handles in kitchens. You don't want them to get dirty or greasy and they'd be right. much easier to clean. Mm. But it always struck me that that level of obsession and detail, if you're going to that level of degree to not just think about it, but then articulate why that is important to the ultimate end user, mm. that shows a particular obsession, which I think is very rare and yeah, very interesting. Absolutely, yeah. I wonder, if, going on to one of you, Goldfinger's principles now, which is to create spaces that feed the soul. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's a line from our manifesto. Uh, very, uh, very good that <laughs> you've pulled that one out. And um, we actually wrote that as a as a team. You can find it on our website. It's also pasted in huge in our in our showroom. Um, we we wrote that as a team uh, during the first lockdown, um, and it's something that we that line really came from. A, so many of our clients telling us that this was what was unique about what we did. There was something about our furniture which they felt in, brings soul into their space, which was whether a commercial space or a residential space is something I think everyone loves that it, it does, you know. And I think why, I mean, it's very much the fact that it, it, it feels handmade. You can see the hand of the craftsman. The fact that the wood is so, is so textured and so um, clearly a, a living, you know, material. Um, does I think wood very much lends itself to that, but I think you know the the fact that by buying furniture from us, people feel like they're doing good in the world as mm -hmm. well. There's this sense of you know being part of a of a of a greater movement around um, social impact and and also you know voting with every pound you spend for how you want the world to be. It's sort of I you know I'm going to spend and, and and I think our customers really feel that, that it's sort of, yes, it maybe is a bit more expensive, but I'm having so much more impact with this. And I have, more importantly, I have the most beautiful object that, you know, I've had a hand in co-creating. I think the other part is also, you know, because it's such a face-to-face -face process, you know, that our, our clients get to meet the designer and work with them one-on-one. -on -one. They get to meet our makers. They can see the product being made. There's so, I don't know how many places there are still like that where you get to see the whole process from beginning to end. Um, and I think it just makes it very real and, and, and very, very soulful as a result. Do you think furniture can be art? Absolutely. I think that's very much our, our hope uh, and intention is, is for our furniture to be passed down from generation to generation, just like art. You know, uh, I, I very much think, you know, this, this concept of and we're very much the antiques of the future. Furniture is a really wonderful, I think, segue between the utilitarian object and art because it, it is it does have a function, unlike some art, although obviously some would contest that all art has a function, but, you know, utilitarian function. But obviously the form of it, the design that goes into it, and I think there, there's, I mean, there's many, many examples of this, but I think uh, someone I, who's furniture I really admire as art is uh, George Nakashima. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, his work and their work now, but there's, and it, the, for me it's art because it, that, that process starts so early in terms of, you know, 
very much being led by the tree that is found. And then also the fact that it's just the, even the act of making the furniture being so mindful, almost making as a meditation was what was driving it, not so much the, the end product. And I find, but obviously the end product is absolutely stunning and beautiful in that it has ended up in many, many museums uh, to, to date. So um, I think that's a, a great example of a furniture as art. And yes, I, I, I do firmly believe it can be. <laughs> and obviously you work on a daily basis with wood. That is the you know, core component into a, a beautiful object you produce. Do you have a favorite wood? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's one that's like saying with you know, children, do you have your favorite child? I mean, I love, I do, I do love all, I do love all woods, I, but obviously I have some preference for some. I think my, my favorites are um, elm and probably ash, but elm has a particular, there's something about the grain and uh, the, the darkness that I absolutely adore. So, but there's always new ones that I always pop up on our radar. And that's what I love about this work is there's, you know, I'm not a woodworker myself, so I, I've always loved trees, but really understanding the ins and outs. And the most recent um, new favorite wood that uh, has come up on our radar is this uh, wood called sweet chestnut, okay. um, which looks similar to oak, but actually is much more beautiful, has a more interesting grain and very similar sort of honey, honey colored tone. And there's lots of it, whereas oak, we've just overused and overdone it so there's not so much of it left so I'm a big uh, sweet chestnut fan now. <laughs> and uh, what do you think of plywood? I think it has a place it doesn't make my heart sore like a hawk um, which is often a test for whether so it has a place at least it's made of natural material yeah. um, but you know there's often glue still involved and it's still a man-made material it doesn't have the same reuse potential yeah. as solid timbers so it has its limitations but it has a place I can't you know we, we of course we've used it sometimes in projects you know when the client needs it or budget means that it's pushing it that way, but not, not usually in our, in our fine furniture, it's mostly in the kind of fitted furniture. So it's like everything, you know, it, it, some things have a place. It may be, it's just that in our studio, not, it doesn't have a very big place. Um, we'll come on to your objects very shortly, but I want to ask before that, are there any objects you wish you could own? Hmm. Ah, oh, gosh, so many. That's a great question. The George Nakashima table mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is is definitely one. Although I haven't quite figured out the the shipping element, uh, I'd have to go live in the U.S. to make it really sustainable. But um, then, uh, yeah, I I can't think of anything right this moment of something I would absolutely love to own. Is there anything you collect? I used to collect stamps as a child, <laughs> being a bit of a global citizen, half French, half Chinese, and lived all over the world. Stamp collecting was a big, a, a huge joy. And I have kept it. But it's I a very, very know. low density wood. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it is, I was really into it for about three or four years. So it, it became quite a serious collection. Uh, and uh, my grandma's friends would then give me all this. I acquired a lot of collections as well. So one day, if I ever, because it, it, it was such a fun way to discover the world, I used to keep an inventory of how many stamps I had per country and alphabetize it. The beginnings of me being a massive nerd and, and sort of very... Uh, liking to organize things was was evident quite early on. Um, but that's that's probably the only thing I, I collect. Um, 
collected and I don't think I do anymore. I, yeah, I think operating more in a, in a more sort of minimalist way. I, I love, I love cooking. So I do collect quite a lot of cooking utensils and, um, but not, not, not a specific brand or anything like that. So, yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking about. Like a stamp is a perfect example of something sort of emotionally utilitarian, right? It has one Absolutely. function, which is to get something, an object or a letter from one place to another. So the idea that people still love it and care for it after it's had its one single use yes. is, yeah, a bit of romance there. Yeah. Um, and some countries really produce some beautiful stamps till this day. France, I have to say not because I'm from there, but produce some very beautiful stamps. <laughs> Interesting. Where does the UK sit in the It's not great. Index? Not great. You have to, well, you have to ask for them uh, very specially. It's not as wide a range. There's a lot of royal stamps. Yeah. Um, but uh, in terms of the sort of artistic beauty of some of them, it's, it, the, I have to say, not, not so great. But um, Must I, try harder. I must try harder. Exactly. I have to speak to some philatelic society somewhere to make make better stamps <laughs> they're dying out sadly yeah, imagine. Mm. now if we could turn our attention to your three objects which you very kindly brought in mm -hmm. that hopefully each encapture this idea of the emotional utilitarian if we could begin with your first could you tell us about it? yes so this is my beloved matcha bowl it has huge significance to me because I have a passion for matcha, um, which is how I start my day every day. And in itself is a very slow, meditative, mindful process, sort of, you know, there's a whole, I haven't brought the whole kit, but bamboo whisk, there's I mean, the amount of, and over the years I've accumulated more and more. Actually, that's another thing I collect. Sorry, matchables. <laughs> I forgot. I do, <laughs> to my husband's horror, because I, I was trying to minimize how much stuff we have in our house. But every time I see a matchable, you know, these ones are handmade, you get to really see the hand of the craftsman. There's so many imperfections in them. And uh, I just love matcha and it's a great way. And that is actually how Zen Buddhist monks actually start their day is with matcha before they meditate. And, and what is it specifically um, that makes it a matcha bowl rather than a standard bowl? Um, so it's, it's a good question. I mean, the shape firstly, but you would say many other bowls have this shape. There's some ridges. I mean, it, it's having enough width to whisk in a T shape, that the cross shape, which is how you get the perfect um, level of foam when, you, when you're whisking your matcha. And the fact that it's handmade and you know, you've got this sort of enamel coating yeah. as well. But I would need to dissect the exact definition of what makes it a chawan, which is the tea bowl in, in Japanese. So, And how much of it is the physical object itself and the color and the shape? Um, yeah. The texture versus the that I guess ceremony that you have around mm. the use of it. That means about why I love it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, I think it's it's all of the above. It's it's what it represents as, as a, sort of the way I start my day. But I also love the the shape of it, the holding of it. There's something incredibly comforting and um, warming about about having you know drinking from a bowl yeah it, it and i i think they're very very beautiful objects uh, as well and what happens when you're kind of separated i suppose when you're you know away when you're traveling i i, I you're gonna laugh but i i sometimes i actually travel with one um 
I, I definitely have, we, we live half um, the time in, in France and I definitely have a collection there. So having sufficient matcha bowls around is, is, a, is a big part of um, a happy life. So I don't always travel with one because I would hate for one to break because they are really fragile. So I, I, I just do without, I mean, often I will just find, I will travel with my whisk, but um, I, um, I will find another bowl, but it's not the same. <laughs> making making matcha in a bowl that has a sort of pattern on the bottom or the whisk captures and so yeah yeah I I make do because such as such as uh, life but often I often when I'm traveling I'll also just say well I if there isn't matcha around I, I will have what we're what is the local thing to have so uh, I I'm it's, it's not an addiction it's just a, <laughs> it's just a ritual that I love <laughs> Thank you, Marie. Um, it, it's a lovely matcha bowl, I must say. Um, and could we go on to your second object? Then? Yes. So my second object is um, a Goldfinger cake stand, um, which uh, I absolutely adore, um, made from sycamore and London Plain. The top is sycamore and the base is London Plain. And it speaks to, well, my love of trees, but also my love of cake, mm -hmm. which is really my, my passion for cooking began with cakes, with baking uh, at a very, very young age. And so having, again, multiple cake stands, you're going to laugh because you're going to say you actually collect cake stands. Don't you? <laughs> I do have a lot. I don't know if I'm officially a collector, but I do. Uh, I do have many. And I, I, I don't think there's such a thing as too many cake stands. But I, I love I love it because it, it, it's, it really sort of um, represents all of my values. I showed you the GPS coordinates of uh, where the tree once stood at the at the base. So, you know, obviously it's a sort of super low carbon cake stand um, that has so much character. Um, and yeah. And what is it about the, the design? Because it is a very, it's a, it's a beautiful design, a simple, mm, functional very design. Very simple, yeah. Well, I, I love exactly the sort of the base that is has become the inspiration for the Tate Collection's legs. Something that very, very simple uh, that... Uh, I think initially it was supposed to be a circular, completely circular, but the labor and the cost, the time to make it complete was, and also the wastage, mm -hmm. more wastage from making it completely circular. So we went with this and actually prefer it that way. And so that, yeah, I think there's something lovely about the, the circle with the kind of more squarish, but we're still with the rounded corners at the bottom, which I, which I love. And, and for me, I think, you know, cakes are such a lovely symbol of, coming together for happy occasions and or any any day in my case but um yeah they're happy things you don't get a cake stand on well you know it's a it's a happy occasion when you do that <laughs> and how how often does it get to fulfill its ultimate purpose of holding a cake oh in our home uh very often i'd say probably at least once a week oh wow <laughs> yes very 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 into cakes we host a lot and I love to make cakes, so yes, it gets a lot of outings. <laughs> Thank you, Marie. And let's go to your third and final object, if you could tell us about that, please. Yes, so my third and final object is actually my wedding band, which I will take off later to show you. It's gold, as you can see, and it's actually um, my husband's and my family's gold, various bits of jewelry from both our families, that we, we worked with a jeweler to melt together and create new rings from it. Um, so it was a real, on the one hand, it just, you, you end up, a lot of the time people inherit gold, they don't know what to do with it. You're not gonna wear 
you know, whether it's old wedding bands or, you know, maybe broken things. But gold is such an amazing material similar to wood that, you know, you can really melt down and transform into absolute, a completely new shape. And so we have wedding bands that are made from the same pool of gold. And it was it just a, a really a fun way to use old objects, bring them into the future and extend their life by, again, using a bit of craft and creativity to, to, to make them into. And so they have a very unique kind of gold. There was a bit of rose gold in it mm -hmm. and a bit of yellow gold. And so there's a very lovely uh, combination and that we both have. Um, and so that, that's, uh, that's my, my third object. And tell, and tell us a bit more about that design process. How did, how did it end from that kind of original sketch and concept into that final object that is on your finger? Um, so it was actually during lockdown, so it was very, uh, amazingly, the jeweler was still working. And um, we spent a lot of time sort of, you know, for him, it was just like, easy, no problem. Um, but it was then, you know, choosing the, the, you know, there's so many elements that the curvature of it, the width of it, for me, for him, his is obviously much thicker. Um, and getting, we got, we got it engraved with our initials and the date of our wedding uh, on the inside. So it was just a very uh, collaborative process with my husband. Uh, it was fun to have him involved in, in it. And it just also, it, it seemed, um, it was just, a, again, a very kind of emotional and utilitarian process because ultimately, not that that's what drove it, but it was much cheaper than buying new rings. And why buy them when you can actually, you know, and it makes you realize that actually sometimes we're looking for things that we already have, the material's already there, but we haven't thought about the way it can be transformed into the thing you need. And so it was a real, a wonderful way to express our values about um, sustainability and you know, not using new materials when we already have it. So, and we love them and we, it's a yeah, beautiful object that we, we share. Well, thank you very much for bringing your objects in, Marie. Um, if people want to learn more about Goldfinger, what's the best way to learn more or, or reach out to you? Well, our, our, our website for sure, www.goldfinger.design and, and then our Instagram handle is the same at goldfinger.design. But honestly, the best way is to come in, come into our showroom on underneath the Trellick Tower, which has a Sicilian restaurant right there as well. And you get to see the workshops and everything all in one place. Uh, so that is definitely the best, the best way. I think the, the final thing is if anybody wants to get involved with the Goldfinger Academy or, or the People's Kitchen, we actually have a, a, an annual fundraiser as part of our 10-year anniversary. And um, later this week, actually, we'll be launching a silent auction so anybody can get involved with uh, being part of it and then gets to be part of the Academy and see one of our future traineeships. So that's a fun way to get involved. Marie Carlyle, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.